We are looking at big discipleship themes in the Gospel of Mark. And so turn there, Matthew, Mark, it's the second book in the New Testament. We're going to spend a lot of our time in the middle of Mark, in Mark chapter 8. But I want to start by reading the very opening lines of this Gospel, okay? So Mark chapter 1, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. It says, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Mark lays out in the opening words of his gospel that Jesus is on a way. The word way. The Greek word here is hodo. Okay? Say that. Hodo. Hodo. There's no Hebrew words today. Okay? So nobody has to go. Okay? So it's just, it's all Greek today. All right? Hodo is the word. It means way. And you find this word hodo. It's on almost every page in the gospel of Mark. Jesus is walking along the way. Jesus is traveling away. Jesus' disciples are following him along the way. Way, way, way. You see this word way all through the gospel of Mark. And then in verse 15, we've got what I think are the very first recorded words of our Lord Jesus. If Mark is the first gospel written, okay, and most scholars believe it is. If Mark is the first one, then what we've got here are the earliest first words of Jesus that were ever written down and recorded and preserved for us. And so starting in verse 15, you've got Jesus, and it's this, it's this radical inaugural announcement and then three commands. Okay, verse 14 says, Jesus goes into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Now listen to Jesus. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Come follow me. A dramatic statement about the kingdom of God. It's near. This is right now. Okay? Present tense. And then these three primary commands. These are three imperatives. These things come first. Repent. Leave your current way of life and start out on another way of life. Change direction. Reverse course, a change of heart, change of mind and attitude. That's repent. And then believe. Jesus says, see it. Experience it. Get into it. Live into a personal, relational connection to the realities of the kingdom of God. And then follow me. Live your life obediently in a way that matches up with the lordship of Jesus. What you do and why you do it and how you do it. All of that submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Follow me. That's a command, by the way. It's not a request, right? It's a command. Follow me. It's not like Jesus is putting out a sign-up sheet like we do for small groups leaders in the women's retreat, okay? He's not posting office hours so he can discuss the kingdom of God with you if you feel like it. That's not what this is. This is a direct command. You follow me. Look at verse 17. Follow me. And they did. At once, it says, verse 18, or immediately. Verse 20, without delay, they left everything to follow him. Chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus commands Matthew, follow me. 
And he did. He left everything immediately and followed Jesus. Follow me, follow me, follow me. Over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. And every single time they did. And their lives were changed forever. And they had no idea. When Jesus said, follow me, and these boys said yes, they had no idea what they were signing up for. How could they? You know, it's like taking a, an eight-year-old kid and saying, I want you to write me an essay about everything it means to fall in love and be married. And you read that essay and you're like, it's not even close. It's not even close. It's not even in the same universe. How could an eight-year-old kid even know? How could that kid even begin to imagine what it means to fall in love and to be married? Listen, the very first time you ever say yes to Jesus, you're at least that far away. You have no idea. How could you know? All right, flip back to the first chapter, and let's look at verse 17 again. I think if you've got the American Standard Version, or if you've got the King James Version, I think you can see this a little easier. My NIV says, come follow me. Okay, most of your translations will say that. But the Greek word here is opiso. Say that out loud. Opiso, okay? That's, that's behind me. That word is behind. Get behind me, right? It's not follow. There's a whole other Greek word for follow, and this ain't it. Okay, this is opiso. It means get behind me. And I know you can say, yeah, get behind me, follow me. It's the same thing. I know it's kind of the same thing, but I think Mark is doing something deliberate here. I think Mark is doing something intentional. Look at verse 20. It, it's the same word, opiso. James and John left their dad in his boat and went behind Jesus. All right, flip over to chapter 5. You've got this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, right? She's out of money. She's out of options, almost out of hope. Verse 27 says, she came behind Jesus. Opiso, there's that word again. She came behind him and touched his cloak, and she was healed. Chapter 8. And we've got this just about memorized, right? If anyone would come after me, no, the word is opiso. If anyone would come behind me, is what Jesus says, then he would deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Behind me. Behind Jesus. We all travel the way of the Lord, behind the Lord. And I think Mark is doing this on purpose. The order is important here. Listen, here's the order. Jesus is in front. Can I get an amen? amen. Jesus is in front. Where are we? We're behind Jesus, right? Flip over to chapter 10. That may be just the, the very next uh, page. Verse 32 says... They were on their way, hodo, that's the word. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus going on before them, right? Verse 52, blind Bartimaeus is healed, and then he follows Jesus, it says, along the way. Hodo, there's that word again. Now go over to chapter 14. Look at verse 28. Jesus tells his followers, after I'm risen, I will go on ahead of you, right, in front. Chapter 16, the angel at the empty tomb says, Jesus is going ahead of you. Listen, it's not enough to be on the way with Jesus. Jesus has to be in front. You've got to be behind while you're on the way. Not beside Jesus, certainly not in front of Jesus. We are behind Jesus as we follow his way. Okay? This is so important, all right? Sometimes the important stuff you feel like doesn't need to be said, I think this needs to be said. We need to be reminded. 
Jesus is leading. I'm following. Okay? Jesus is leading. The church is following. Okay? Jesus has to be in front. All right. We did all that so we can do this. Go back to chapter 8. Here we go. These big discipleship themes. Chapter 8. Look at verse 27. It says, the disciples are on the way. Hodo, they're on the way with Jesus. On the way. And the Son of God then starts talking with them about the way. He starts talking to them about suffering and about rejection and death. And Peter says, no. Peter is speaking for all the disciples when he says, no, he rebukes Jesus. Well, now Peter has gone from on the way to in the way, right? <laughs> These guys are all on the way with Jesus, but they are so eaten up with, with delight in power and dreaming about achievement and success. And they're, they're just so focused on personal ambition. And they want a militaristic Messiah who's above suffering and death. They want a Savior who can give them power and control and wealth. And Mark says, Jesus turns, verse 33, he turns, he looks at his disciples, and he says, get behind me, opiso. Get behind me, Satan. This is such a bad move. He has to call out Satan right? Get behind me. Well, obviously they're following Jesus. That's why he had to turn to look at them. They were already behind him. Why does Jesus say get behind me? Because they're on the way with Jesus, but they're not doing the way the way Jesus does the way. They're going to the same place together, but they're not doing it the way Jesus does it. Verse 33, get behind me, Opiso, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of people. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, verse 34, and said, if anyone would come behind me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world yet forfeit his own soul? Yes, I am the Messiah, Jesus says. Yes, of course, I am the promised Christ. But I came not to live. I came to die. I did not come here to take power, but to lose it. I did not come here to rule. I have come here to serve. That's how I'm going to defeat evil. That's how I'm going to overcome sin and death, and Satan. That's the way I'm going to fix everything. Now listen, the goal is important, okay? The end matters. But the ways and the means are just as important as the end. How you do it is just as important as what you're doing. Jesus' way is not our way. It's just not. And so I want to consider this morning three ways that Mark shows us is the Jesus way. These are the ways Jesus is on the way, all right? And the first one is Jesus' way is countercultural. Popularity and power mean everything to us and our culture, but popularity and power mean squat to Jesus Christ. He ain't interested, right? And look at all the power and popularity you've got in the Gospel of Mark. You've got King Herod, who is the perfect picture of power. 
Even at his birthday party, he holds the power of life and death in his hands. With the snap of a finger, he can have a preacher beheaded. The religious leaders, you've got the chief, chief priests, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, they're in the picture. You've got Pilate and all the government officials, Festus and those guys, and you've got the military, you've got the Roman soldiers, powerful, powerful people. And all of them have their way with Jesus. Jesus is the one in this story who is despised and rejected. Jesus is the one in the gospel who is crucified. He dies. But remember what the centurion said when he saw how Jesus died. What did that reveal to him when Jesus died? Surely this man was the son of God. Listen, Jesus' way is upside down. It's countercultural all the way. Now our default is to pursue the ways of the world. As disciples of Christ individually, and I think as churches of Christ collectively, we're not... We're not real careful with this. Without even thinking about it, we embrace and we adopt the way of the culture. We imitate the ways of the powerful and high-profile people who lead large companies and corporations, people who lead political parties and nations by, by force and by threat and with their money and with their might, by out yelling and out insulting the people who disagree with us and by walling ourselves off from everybody else. And we don't even think to consider those ways are completely at odds with the way of Jesus. Totally the opposite. I think about Israel's King David. Okay, think about David for a second. David had every blessing of God's strength. He possessed great military might. He possessed incredible strategic power. He conquered every foreign land. He expanded Israel's territory. Israel did not have one enemy that did not surrender to the power of David's kingdom. And then Solomon comes after him and Solomon has every blessing of God's wisdom. And he's got great building programs and he has a wonderful economy and he's got unsurpassed peace in the kingdom of Israel. And it all failed. It didn't last. It was all destroyed. Every bit of it. And I wonder sometimes if God didn't give us Israel for all those centuries just to prove a point about worldly kingdoms. They don't work. I wonder if God didn't give David and Solomon all that success and all those advantages just to kill any illusions we might have later about worldly kingdoms being the way to go. I wonder about that. It's a question I've got. Church, another king has come. Can I get an amen on that? Another king has come. One greater than Solomon, he says. And he went so far as to make fun of Solomon's glory by comparing it to the glory of a flower just out in the field, right? And he offers us a cross. It's a different way. And remember, let's not lose this. The Jews of Jesus' time, they were clamoring for a return to the good old days. They wanted a Davidic king who would restore the nation back to the day when they were in charge when they submitted to no one, when their enemies bowed to them. 
They were starving for a return of their nation to Solomon's splendor when the peace of the world was controlled by their biggest army and when the national religion reigned in fancy robes under the magnificent national temple in the beautiful capital city. Jesus said no to all of that. Clearly, he said no. And man, that's hard for us. It's hard for us. It was hard for the apostles. He starts talking about his death, how he's going to suffer. This is what Luke is reading at the table, right? I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And James and John are like, okay, where are we going to sit when this thing's over? How much power are we going to get, you know? Jesus comes out of the tomb. God's Holy Spirit brings him back from the dead. What's their first question? Are you going to restore the kingdom now? When's it happening? And Jesus just says, oi, you know, he just rolls his eyes. Oi. I hear Christians today clamoring for a return of the United States to some kind of past glory days when followers of Jesus were the ones in charge, when Christians made the rules, they say, when Christians set the tone, they say. Christians back then had all the respect. They had all the power. They had all the influence. Our churches were all full. And the laws of the land all reflected our Christian values. I hear Christians say that. And evidently, that's why a lot of them vote. For some good old days thing with Bush or Reagan or David or Solomon. Listen, David and Solomon, those were the very best of everybody's good old days. It didn't get any better. Good old days, then David and Solomon. Jesus looked at that and said, no, we're not doing that. That's not how we're doing it. My way is love, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, mercy, grace. That's how we're doing it. Jesus says, my way is countercultural. Get behind me. Oh, I thought I was going to do a sprinkler dance, didn't you? I'm, I wasn't. I wasn't. That was weird. All right, here's the second thing. Ruth, I wasn't going to do it, I promise. Here's the second thing. Jesus' way is sacrificial, okay? To Jesus, he doesn't matter. Everybody else does. That's Jesus, sacrificing to the end. Everybody comes first with Jesus. Flip over to Mark chapter 10. We've already read some of this this morning. Jesus calls them all together, all of his followers, and he says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Verse 43, we're not doing it that way. I'm paraphrasing. That's the RSV, the revised Stanglin version, okay? But he says, not so with you. We're not doing it that way. Verse 43, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus says deny yourself, hey, he knows what he's talking about. Jesus gave freely. He gave extravagantly of his time and his energy and his gifts and his resources always giving when he was exhausted he kept giving when he was crushed by the crowds he kept feeding when he was questioned by the authorities he kept teaching when he was rejected by his own family and friends he kept healing 
when he was denied by his own followers, he kept suffering. When the world turned its back on him, he kept on dying. Jesus sacrificed it all. Church, it was never about him. It was always about others. It was always about you. I'm not sure we think about that very much. We have all the gifts. We have all the talents. We have all the food and the education and the opportunity. We have all the facilities and the buildings and the money. We've got all of that. And we do take care of people after we take care of ourselves. That's how I feel. I think I'm that way when I think about it, but I don't think about it very often. I'll take care of you. I will. I'm the preacher for crying out loud. I'll take care of you. Everybody in this room, I'll do everything I can to meet your needs. I will take care of you. I will make sure you're taken care of after I take care of Carrie Ann and my family. Right? I mean, I'm going to make sure they're taken care of first. I'm going to take care of myself and mine first. Then I'll take care of you. Can anybody find Jesus saying anything like that anywhere in the Bible? No. See, we don't think about that. Several years ago at Princeton Theological Seminary, some theology professors got 60 theology students together and they read to them the parable of the Good Samaritan. And they instructed these theology majors, okay? These are seminary students. They instructed all 60, you go out one at a time across the quad to this other building where some other researchers are and you tell them what you just heard about the Good Samaritan. Well, in the, and, and go one at a time and go quickly. Don't, don't keep the researchers waiting. We gotta get all 60 of y'all through this deal. Right in the middle of the path, they put a guy who looked like a homeless guy. He was dressed shabbily. He was right in the middle of the path where all these students were going to walk. He was sobbing uncontrollably. He was slumped over. He stuck out like a sore thumb. You couldn't miss this guy. You had to walk around him or through him. 60 theology students, right? Ministry majors. 60 of them walked by one at a time. All 60 looked at him. Couldn't miss him. Only 22 stopped and asked him if they could help. 38 ministry majors, theology students, looked at him, walked right by to their religious assignment. Church, you cannot say that you're on the way with Jesus if while you're on the way, you see somebody who needs help along the way and you look the other way. Can't do it. Get behind me, Jesus says. My way is sacrificial. Get behind me. And then lastly, Jesus' way is personal. Jesus made sure that he was personal with people. People matter to Jesus. To Jesus, people are important. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus heals individuals. He takes care of and loves individuals. He comforts and encourages individual people. There's nothing abstract, right? It's not theory. Nothing's impersonal. It's all very personal to Jesus. Going back to uh, chapter 1, you know, Jesus takes Peter's mother-in-law by the hand and helps her up. Same chapter, he touches the man with leprosy. 
In chapter 2, he calls Matthew, and then he eats dinner with him and his friends at Matthew's house. The bleeding woman in chapter 5, she touches Jesus, and he calls her my daughter. He takes that dead girl by the hand in chapter 5 with her mom and dad right there in the room with him. On and on and on. Jesus is hugging and touching people. He's meeting with people, eating with people, taking care of people. Jesus' way is intensely personal. And I'm not sure we think about that. You know, we write checks. We build buildings. We support programs. We, we serve on committees. All really good things. Praise God for those things. Praise God for those really, really good things. But church, it feels like to me there are fewer and fewer face-to-face -face conversations with each other in our living rooms. There are fewer and fewer visits in each other's houses. There are fewer touches and hugs. There are fewer confessions. There are fewer prayers lifted up to the Father together through streams of tears. Church, I wonder sometimes if we're not fellowshipping by Facebook and shepherding by text. We don't even think about it. We just do it. I don't know how many of y'all remember the movie Risen. Do you remember this? It's like six or seven years ago, maybe. It was the gospel story of Jesus, kind of as seen through the eyes of that centurion who, was, who saw Jesus die. If you haven't seen it, it's really good. It's called Risen, which is kind of a spoiler alert, the title, right? But this is a scene kind of near the end of the movie. And uh, this centurion has kind of been watching from a distance this whole time, noticing Jesus, the apostles, what they're doing. And at the end of the movie, he's a little closer. And Jesus is having a meal with his apostles, which is what Jesus does. And uh, the centurion leans over to Peter. He's looking at Jesus, but he leans into Peter and he says, why do you follow him? And right then, there's a ruckus. There's a noise off screen. And the camera flips over and about 100 yards away, there's a leper being driven out of his village by the people who live there. And this guy's face is misshapen and disfigured. It's covered in blood and boils and sores. He's missing half of his hands. He's bandaged up. This guy is a mess, and it's terrible. And they're yelling at him and cursing him and kicking him. They're hitting him with brooms and sticks. They drive him to the ground. They're pulling him away from the village, kicking him out of the village. And Jesus gets up. And Peter says to his friends, he's about to do it again. Peter, Jesus gets up. He walks resolutely to this guy. And he picks up the leper by the shoulder and he kind of has a hand around the man's head and he just pulls him to him. And you can hear the man's sobbing. You can hear his muffled voice up against Jesus' chest. Nobody ever touches me. And Jesus just holds him. He just holds him. You can see the man sobbing. And then Jesus releases his embrace. And the man is healed. He looks at his hands. He feels his face. He doesn't even know what to say. He's just smiling at Jesus. He doesn't even know what to say. And Peter turns to the centurion and he says, that's why we follow him. That's why. Jesus' way is personal. Jesus' way is, is all about carrying burdens. It's all about sharing 
pains and hurts, right? Not avoiding it, not protecting yourself from it, but, but walking right into it. Listen to me, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Here's the takeaway, one of them, okay? I, I want you to hear this. It is never the wrong thing to show up at somebody's house to pray. Hey, that's always the right thing to do. It is never the wrong thing to show up at a funeral to just cry. That is the right thing to do. It's never the wrong thing to just show up at a hospital to sit. That is always the right thing to do. And it'll impact you. It'll burden you. You'll take that home with you. That kind of stuff will keep you up at night. But it's so like our Lord. It's so like Jesus Christ who never one time, never shied away from you and your mess. He walked right toward you. He walked right up into your face to embrace your mess. And it's messy. He bore your burden. He carried your pain. He became your sin, and it cost him, cost him dearly, cost him his life. Jesus says, my way is personal. Get behind me. And I want to challenge you this morning, okay? As a person, okay, you sitting in this worship center every Sunday does not make you a disciple of Christ any more than you sitting in a chicken coop once a week makes you a chicken. Am I right? You got to get behind Jesus and follow him. As a church, hear me, brothers and sisters. As a church, maintaining some kind of a status quo is not the same thing as following Jesus. We got to get, I didn't get as many amens on that because that made you nervous, didn't it? It made you nervous. Listen to me. Being a member in good standing or being a good middle of the road church is not the same as following Jesus. It's just not. Being a disciple of Jesus means we make the call to give it all for the sake of others. It means we choose to lose our rights and we refuse to use our might for the sake of his great name. It means we decide to obey and follow Jesus in his way. His way. The Jesus way. There was a kid who walked to a friend's house after school one day and it was snowing like a blizzard. After about two hours, this kid is stuck at his friend's house. There's no way he can get home except his father came to get him. His father has strong legs. His father has a broad back. And he can break through that four feet of packed-in snow, and he can take his son home with him. His son follows in his steps. His son walks in his father's steps behind his father. Now, the son doesn't walk exactly like the father. He can't. He's not equipped to. But he follows in the father's steps. And they make it home together. Now, hear me. The father isn't just a teacher for his child. He's not just an example, right? He doesn't say, look what I did. Now, you do the same thing and, and good luck. You know, if you make it great, if you don't, oh well. That's not it. And it's also the father's not doing this vicariously for his son. If that were the case, the father would just go home and the kid would stay in the warmth of his friend's house. That's not it either. No, the kid's got to get out in the cold. And he's got to break through that snow in his father's steps, right behind his father. 
needing grace, needing forgiveness, needing support and help. But together, in his steps, because of the work the Father has already done, and because of the work the Father is currently doing, they both make it home. Church, that's how we do it. We get behind Jesus, and we follow him. Stand with me, church. Let's sing together.